Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Whoa, yeah. <laughs> I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by Dr. Krista Chumanchu and two wonderful producers, Dr. Rebecca Raymond Coulter and Dr. Sally Elliott. Team, how's it going? What is up? Hey. Sally, welcome to the show. Thank you. First episode featuring Dr. Sally Elliott. We are so excited to have you on the producer team. Tonight was a great two-part episode, so not only the episode you're listening to, but another one. We might do this for both episodes, but we are talking about pediatric anxiety before we get into the content. Hey, Chris, tell us about the show. Yes, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Beth Brannon, a child psychiatrist, pediatrician, clinician educator, and mother. She works as a child psychiatrist in Rhode Island, treating children with severe anxiety disorders and obsessive compulsive disorder in a specialized day hospital program. She loves teaching as much as she loves doctoring, and among other medical education roles, she values teaching pediatricians how to treat mild and moderate childhood anxiety and OCD in primary care settings. Today, Beth teaches us about the multiple forms of anxiety disorder, interesting places to find serotonin receptors, you may be surprised, why exposure therapy is terrifying and wonderful, we learned a lot about the dialectical, and a ton about medications for anxiety disorders. Oh, I'm so looking forward to this episode. What do you think, Sally? Me too. So grab a steaming cup of anxiety, take a sip, and let's get started. Dr. Beth Brannon, we are so excited to have you. Welcome to the Cribsiders. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We are very fortunate to have you, and I always uh, kind of introduce that we're a very informal group. I feel like I try to tell everyone I'm informal as soon as I meet them so that there's no expectations. Because we're informal, uh, we try to use uh, first names. Is it fine if we call you Beth? Absolutely. Excellent. Uh, I feel like we're already old friends now, and we share a institution and now this wonderful podcasting moment. We're excited to have you and would love to get to know you a little bit better. And our listeners would love to get to know you a little bit better. Could you start by just giving a little bit of a one-liner to describe yourself and maybe a interest that you have outside of medicine? Absolutely. So this is going to be a run-on sentence, but um, I would say I'm an empath. I'm a mom. I'm a triple-boarded physician who believes in treating the whole child and family system whenever possible. And I am a wholehearted Brene Brown believer um, who knows that we need to feel, name, and experience the full range of our feelings before we can stop hurting people because we're hurt. Um, And that being vulnerable and asking for help when we need it is courageous and can help us all connect and heal. Love it. Bid Brene uh, Brown fans on the podcast. And uh, I was just reading something about how empaths uh, cannot watch cringe humor movies. Correct. Uh, And that is when I (laughs) felt... uh, confirmation so like that I, three stooges or uh, i love lucy i find those all like difficult to watch sometimes i remember meet the parents was always just <laughs> oh, like, so a stressful so experience for me like, so, i totally agree <laughs> uh, 
unbelievable. Wow, what a strong start. Um, I'm like, <laughs> we're, we're already deep in the episode at this point. We haven't even really gotten started. But um, I, you know, I have been trying um, to take some time to read this year, which is a little hard to do as an intern. But I recently actually read quite a few books. Um, so I am looking for more. And I'm wondering what you think a book uh, that every physician or every person should read does not have to be medicine related at all. What's your what's the top of your stack to recommend? Oy vey. Um, I have a lot. I'm going to go with what every physician should read because that helps me narrow it down. <laughs> great, great. Uh, and I can't even give you just one of those. But um, I would say for every physician, Equal Parts in Shock by Rana Oddish, um, who beautifully describes why we as physicians need to face toward the uncertainty and pain of being human with our patients rather than trying to avoid it or protect our patients or ourselves from it. Um, and then Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington, who describes in crucial factual detail the racial atrocities perpetrated by the medical profession past and present. Really painful to read and entirely necessary if we're going to be honest with ourselves and in turn change our system. Awesome. Those are those are great, great suggestions. And we definitely have heard them from other people, too. So I really mm-hmm. encourage other people to try to check those out. And I think I, you know, I, I've not finished medical apartheid, but it's, it's one that I'm, I'm making my way through. Um, mm-hmm. So my question is, what is the best? You know, you've already dropped a bunch of good pearls on us. But do you have what's the best advice you've ever received either as a learner or as a teacher or even just during your career? I don't know if I have a single piece of best advice per se, but my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Andrea Gold, uh, who I work with, she's a psychologist in the program I work in, and she has spent the last three or four years that we've worked together teaching me about and modeling how to embrace the constant dialectics in life. So for those not familiar, a dialectic is um, sort of two seemingly opposing realities being true at the same time. Um, and being able to hold those simultaneously without making one or the other have to be true or primary over the other. And the way I sort of think of it is it's both and not either or. And that's pretty radical in medicine (laughs) Um, and life, um, at least in my experience. And so I think that trying to embrace the dialectics and see the dialectics and lean into those in medicine, not just as a doctor, but also as a medical educator and a parent and someone who works in teams um, has been probably the most life-changing frame, even if not piece of advice. This is, yeah, I, uh, I've recently kind of become more aware of this concept as well. And I, there's a, an app on the phone called Bloom, which is like one of these electronic CBT therapy type apps. That's very cool and highly recommend. Uh, in part, it's also very educational. And I remember learning about this kind of acceptance and, or, uh, acceptance plus, and talking about it with my partner, who is a psychologist, who then explained to me that is like the foundation of an entire school of psychological thought. But it was still it was uh, it was fascinating, and I think is a really important way to say that like medicine is hard and fulfilling, or that there's mm-hmm. a lot of dual truth throughout all of training and practice. Great. So let's um. This is yeah. exciting. Let's uh, yeah. Let's get into it. Let's dive into some content. And uh, Becca, why don't you you uh, start us off? All right. So we are at um, Cashlack uh, Children's Hospital Outpatient Pediatric Clinic. And uh, Anita is an eight-year-old patient who comes to the clinic for a well-child visit. Um, We'll pretend you're in primary care here, Beth. And she is in third grade. 
and her parents expressed concern that she, quote, seems to be worried about everything, from being afraid of the dark, to worrying about her homework, to worrying if she's liked by her friends at school. They're at the appointment, they're asking you, is this normal? And how concerned should they be? So I guess just to kind of start with the case, what is anxiety? Like, how do you define it? And how much anxiety is normal? Absolutely. And this is a really... um typical case that a pediatrician or, um, you know, or somebody might see. And I think the thing I want to be clear about and kind of frame this is anxiety as a feeling, as an emotion itself is totally normal. Um, And when we think about what that means, it's sort of this, it's an adaptive time-limited response that actually has a lot of life-saving qualities, right? And it tells us if there's something that we need to change that we're doing to prevent getting harmed or lessen the harm that we might have. And that's good. We want that. When it's not normal or what we might call when it's a disorder is when it's excessive for the situation, right? Which takes some amount of judgment of what appropriate for the situation would be um, when it's persistent, like when it doesn't go away, when it's not transient, and when it leads to impairment in functioning. And so, you know, I would have to ask lots more questions of Anita and her parents to understand, is this normal or is this not? Because a lot depends on context. A lot depends on how it's impairing functioning. A lot depends on how developmentally, you know, this this child has been has been growing and changing over time. So I need to know more. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And I I really like how you separate the feeling from what we would kind of think about as like an anxiety disorder and sort of the, the way that we medicalize it. Aside from the feeling of anxiety, which might be part of an anxiety disorder, what are some other common signs and symptoms of an anxiety disorder? Right. So anxiety can have symptom clusters. So you can have feeling and emotion symptoms of anxiety. You can have cognitive symptoms of anxiety and you can have physical symptoms of anxiety. And I would say for most children, one or two might be primary, although the second or third might be under there too, just not quite as prominent. So the cognitive symptoms are the worry thoughts, right? So Anita's worried about what if I don't do my homework correctly? Or, you know, what if a bear comes and gets me in the dark, right? So those are the actual worry thoughts. Those are the cognitive symptoms. The emotional or feeling symptoms are the feelings of fear or unease um, or sort of, uh, you know, I, I feel scared. I feel grossed out. I feel, you know, anything like that. And then the physical symptoms are the things that many people will call like anxiety attacks or panic attacks, oftentimes describe some of the physical symptoms of anxiety, which doesn't have to be an attack form, but heart racing, breathing fast, feeling short of breath, feeling shaky or sweaty, tense or on edge, headaches, stomach aches. So any of those things can exist together for a given child with a particular type of anxiety disorder, or it may be one that's, you know, that's primary over the others. And I would love to follow up on that because I think in in this case, it's we're already going down the anxiety path, though I feel like a lot of times I have patients who present as a pediatric patient with persistent stomach pain or or yeah. daily headaches or a symptom that I have, let's say, ruled out or feel comfortable saying that this is probably not a organic gastroenteritis or you know, primary neurological disorder causing the headaches. And I'm at least thinking that it is possibly related to an underlying anxiety or mood disorder. 
what are the common, are there common presenting symptoms in pediatrics for anxiety? Are there ways that you would help us kind of tease out when some of these symptoms or patterns are related to Mm -hmm. a underlying anxiety disorder? Absolutely. So I think, you know, I think we have to keep in mind that the gut and the brain are intimately connected. So it is entirely unsurprising (laughs) that we get GI symptoms with anxiety. And similarly, entirely unsurprising, we get headaches and other, you know, other neurological symptoms. And so we have to ask more questions and we have to understand both what may be underlying, but also the context in which the patient, the child is existing and what the narrative around feeling states and emotion states are. So the way I talk to my patients who are having a lot of what we call somatic symptoms, right, those physical symptoms of anxiety, because the last thing patients want to hear is either any direct statement or implication that, quote, it's all in your head, right? That is one of the most invalidating things that we can say to a person who has physical symptoms from anxiety, because the reality is it's not. It's in their stomach. (laughs) They are having pain in their stomach. They are having nausea. They're having you know, heartburn type symptoms, those are very real and they are occurring in the body area that they're saying they're occurring in. We're just talking about different causes and different exacerbating factors. And so so when I talk to families and kids, I talk a lot about the connection between the brain and the GI tract. I talk about the fact that 80% of our serotonin receptors are in our GI tract. So it makes lots of sense why we feel anxiety physically in our GI systems and why medicines affect the GI system when you take them for anxiety. And then we talk about, we know it's real. We know you're feeling it. And because we think that it's related to your nervous system and this anxiety process, we're going to treat it differently than you might treat gastroenteritis, right? But it's no different in terms of the symptoms you're having. That's a great pearl, the 80% serotonin receptors in the gut. I never knew that. And that's fascinating. And as you mentioned, that made sense of the GI issues with SSRIs. And um, that's great. So my, my question is, when you're, you're telling us about some of these signs and symptoms and how they may present differently in different patients, is do we see a, a difference in, say, younger children, especially if they're unable to verbalize mm-hmm. things well, or even... Some of our kids who are like, say, in you know somewhere in the autism spectrum disorder, uh, in the spectrum where they can't they can't express themselves. Do, do, what types of differences do we see in, in some of those cases? Right. So absolutely, if kids don't have the language for emotion focused experiences, they're going to express them in whatever they do have the language for. Right. And that could be developmental. That could be related to having, you know, autism or some other sort of, you know, atypical neurodevelopment in some way or, you know, being more neurodiverse. At the same time, though, you don't have to be a young child or a child on the autism spectrum to not have emotion focused vocabulary. (laughs) And so, you know, I think that it is more important, I think, for us to understand an individual child's context around emotions and the experience of emotions and the language and the vocabulary and the emotional expression of the family than it is any particular age or other, um, you know, element of neurodiversity. And generally speaking, right, a four or five-year-old may have different emotion-focused vocabulary than a 12 or 13-year-old, generally speaking. But for any given 12 or 13-year-old, I can tell you certainly um, I've worked with many, many teenagers who 
similarly have not grown up with a lot of emotion-focused vocabulary and so may still express symptoms of anxiety more physically or cognitively than they do emotionally. And so I would love to hear how an expert like yourself tries to to get into that. You mentioned that, you know, would need to ask more questions about Anita's anxiety to really understand if it's disordered or to to understand their emotional expression. For a patient that's in front of you that you're thinking, you know, the spider sense is going off, this is likely <laughs> some type of anxiety. How do you assess a patient for anxiety? What are the questions that you're asking, tools that you're using or, or something to kind of make the diagnosis? this person likely has a generalized anxiety disorder. So if we're talking about generalized anxiety disorder as a specific disorder, that would be a certain set of questions. But before I go down that road, I'm thinking broadly about any anxiety disorder or any disorder that has anxiety as a component. So obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, other things that are no longer technically considered anxiety disorders in the DSM-5, but still involve anxiety as a pretty prominent um, emotional experience. So I sort of think of it as being kind of an anthropologist and going on a bit of a exploration with the patient because two patients can have identical behaviors that are caused by two totally different core fears. And if you don't know the core fear, you're going to really struggle to appropriately respond and treat the anxiety disorder that that child has. And so the approach I take is one of curiosity. And what I mean by that is sort of starting very wide and then narrowing down or taking kind of a downward arrow technique. And so if a family comes in saying, you know, my child, like in this case, my child, you know, is has worries about doing homework. My child has worries about the dark. You know, I might first just say, okay, tell me more. Like what, when did you start noticing this? What you tell me the whole range of worries that she has. And then, and then say, okay, if Let's say, for example, you know, she they're saying, yeah, she's just really worried about going to school. Right. So, okay, so tell me what happens. What does that look like? What does it look like when she when you try to take her to school? Share additional information. Okay, and then if you you know, if you have to walk her up to the front of the school building where all the other kids are able to kind of get out of the car and run in the door and you're needing to walk her up, then what happens? Or if you don't walk her up, if there's been a day where you haven't been able to, then what happens, right? You're really trying to map out both the external kind of outward facing behavior. And then you're trying to turn to the child in a developmentally appropriate way and saying, what might happen if you didn't do it that way? What might happen if your caregiver didn't walk you up to the front door? Or that day when they couldn't, what did you think might happen, right? What were you feeling in your body? What were you thinking could happen? What were you feeling scared of? And you gradually work your way down. There are, you know, I had an experience on an airplane two weeks ago coming back from vacation where, uh, you know, an older elementary school aged boy started crying and screaming as the plane was getting ready to push back from the gate. And he was sitting about two rows ahead of me and sobbing, just saying, Dad, I can't do it. Dad, I can't do it. I have to get off the plane. And the flight attendants rushed over and everybody assumed that he was afraid of flying. And so they were very quickly saying, oh, you know, the captain can come back and talk to you and explain to you like how the airplane flies and that it won't crash and da, 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 da. And he just kept like shaking his head and saying, I can't, I can't, I can't. And I went up there and I said, sorry for intruding. And, <laughs> you know, I happen to work with kids with anxiety for, you know, for my job. Can I talk with you for a little bit? And we did. And it turns out he wasn't afraid of flying. He was afraid of vomiting. 
And he sometimes felt queasy on takeoff and landing. And he was scared that if he vomited in the plane, he couldn't like get out. He couldn't escape. Right. So it wasn't anything about the safety of the plane. It wasn't anything about crashing. It was about vomiting. And if we don't ask, if we don't really understand what the core fear is, we're not going to be able to respond appropriately. And can I ask an ignorant question of in this case, this sounds like it's an emotion of anxiety around a specific issue. And so whether it's DSM criteria or not, is this is this a phobia of vomiting? Is this just someone's just worried and we need to be asking better questions and not make assumptions? Is this just like how to be a good empath? Or is this, you know, something that we should be trying to include anytime with anxiety? This is part of a disorder is figuring out the specific trigger. Yes. So trigger or core fear, like the way we think about it in anxiety treatment is core fear. What is the core fear? fear. And so in so this particular type of phobia is really common in kids. It's called emetophobia, fear of vomiting. And you can have isolated emetophobia, and that could be the primary diagnosis. But you can also have emetophobia as part of obsessive compulsive disorder, and there can be a whole other range of symptoms that go along with it. You can have it as part of generalized anxiety disorder, where it is one of many fears. <laughs> and so, again, you have to get the landscape you know, of what the array of core fears are to know first what to call it, which I guess is sort of important for communication purposes, right, to other folks, you know, to the family and to the child and to the people treating them. But more importantly, I would argue, in order to treat it effectively, you can't design an exposure therapy plan with a child if you don't know what the core fear is. This is great. I feel like I'm already looking at an anxiety framework very differently than what I commonly do. And so, and I think it is clear that I am maybe conflating anxiety with generalized anxiety disorder rather than as a component of PTSD and OCD. So already this episode has been great for Justin's um, development. Uh, <laughs> how, in your mind as a psychiatrist, are you going through these very specific heuristics of, okay, generalized anxiety, I think of, for you know my simple brain, I think of the GAD-7 screening form, or I think of DSM criteria for as you mentioned, kind of persistent causing a disorder of worry, uh, persistent worry. For OCD, are you thinking of very specific DSM criteria? When someone presents with anxiety, are you kind of running through these possible diagnoses in your head and seeing, okay, they match this criteria, not this one? Or what's your general framework of taking anxiety and putting it into one of these anxiety disorder boxes, I guess, that make it more simple for me to keep the problem list updated? Right. I mean, I will say at this point in my career, yes, I can pretty easily in my head run through as I'm talking with a patient and family, like, okay, I'm hearing this. It could be one of these three things. Like, I can go down this pathway pretty quickly, this pathway, then this pathway. So, yes, in answer to your question, that is what I'm doing. That was not always the case, obviously. And so, but I think in addition to going down those pathways in my mind based on the initial sort of presenting symptom, I'm also trying to get to know the patient and the developmental context and all because you know we don't want to over pathologize a normal response <laughs> to something happening in someone's environment and we don't want to over normalize a response that from our vantage point might seem perfectly fine but actually compared to that child's baseline really isn't right and so i feel like it's and again this goes back to me being a triple border and wanting to sort of treat like the whole <laughs> the whole child I really, while I'm going down those diagnostic criteria in my mind, I'm also really trying to get to know who is this child, who was this child before their parents or other caregivers saw something in them that made them raise this issue, right? And how far have we deviated from that child's baseline? 
that's a super helpful framework. I think this goes to sort of some of my next question is, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, how children have maybe deviated from their baseline. I guess my next question would be like, what about our, all our other children who are coming in for the well child checks and things like that? Do we, do we need to be screening all our children for anxiety? Do we just have to wait for the parent to be like, Hey, there's something really wrong here. And then you start doing the digging. Like, how do we approach that? And should we be doing some validated tools? Are there validated tools that we should be giving questionnaires to every parent when they come in? Like, what should we do? Yes, I love that question. So first, I want to (laughs) say, as a triple boarder who worked in a primary care pediatrics clinic as a resident, I fully recognize that primary care doctors have the impossible task of screening for about 80 different things (laughs) in one 20-minute well-child visit. So that is reality, right? And we have to radically accept reality. And what primary care physicians may lack in time in one visit, I know they all try to make up for in longitudinal relationships and follow-up, right? I know that to be true. So with all of those things said, I do advocate for widespread screening in order to catch anxiety early. And the reason for that, and there are validated screening tools, which I'll mention, the reason I advocate for it amongst all the other things that you know we know that pediatricians and other primary care providers need to need to screen for is because it is so common, it usually onsets in childhood, and if we don't treat it, there are so many comorbidities that can come later on in adolescence and adulthood, and it is so treatable, right? And so if we didn't have a great treatment for it, if it was really rare, and if it didn't cause a lot of problems down the line, I'd say no. In comparison to all the other things that we're asking people to screen for in primary care visits, don't worry about it. But in this case, I mean, different studies estimate different numbers, but somewhere between 10 to 20% of U.S. children will be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, and only 20% are going to get adequate, effective treatment. And anxiety disorders are usually the first of many comorbid disorders that come over time if it's not treated. And the vast majority of children will never see a psychiatrist or a therapist, and so it really does end up being primary care providers who will see these kids. And, you know, administering something like the SCARED or the RCADS. So the SCARED is the screen for child anxiety-related disorders. The RCADS is the revised children's anxiety and depression scale. Both of those are available online in the public domain. They are not perfect by any means, but they can give you an overall picture of symptoms and impairment. And then you know, who are we asking more questions of, right? Who are we doing that downward arrow technique with before it gets to the point where parents are noticing or caregivers are noticing a huge change in behavior and functioning. So, I, you know, so I, while that might be a hard answer, <laughs> um, that is that is what I would advocate. And it sounds like those are screenings that look for multiple anxiety disorders. Correct. Is that correct? Correct. While the GAD7, so, which just generalized anxiety disorder. Right. And I mean, you know, generalized anxiety disorder is certainly one of many anxiety disorders, um, but there are many others that are very relevant to kids. And I would say, frankly, the other anxiety disorders are probably more readily treatable with exposure therapy. And the earlier you do that, the better before functional impairment gets really ingrained. Generalized anxiety disorder, while sometimes thought of as sort of what anxiety is, and this is expert opinion based on my experience, this is not an evidence-based thing, but generalized anxiety disorder is one of the lesser treatable anxiety disorders with 
exposure therapy, which is by far the most effective component of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the gold standard, you know, psychotherapy for anxiety disorders. And so, you know, we want to recognize every anxiety disorder in everybody. And we especially want to recognize anxiety disorders that are really treatable if you get a child's effective rapid treatment. Exposure therapy seems wild to me, and I'm excited to to dive into some treatment questions. It's um, the best, Justin. Exposure therapy <laughs> changes your entire frame on life, I can assure you. This, uh, this is what my wonderful partner, a psychologist, also says. Um, I, uh, I I'm happy to hear the, that it's evidence-based and that it works well. Um, maybe before jumping into treatment, one of the questions that we always try to ask about and that is a core mission of our podcast is addressing issues of health equity and trying to identify when there is implicit or overt signs of inequity or rather it's based on race or gender. And I'm curious if there is common concerns around equity in assessment or treatment of anxiety disorders, as I imagine there are. You would be correct. Um, so as I already mentioned, anxiety disorders are underdiagnosed and undertreated across the board, but particularly disproportionately so in youth from minoritized racial and ethnic backgrounds. This is believed to be due to a combination of factors, as often is the case, um, including implicit bias on the part of clinicians, including inequitably distributed mental health resources, um, including spaces and structures, you know, of our system and a clinician population that doesn't represent our nation's demographics of youth, uh, fewer validated assessment tools for screening and diagnosis, stigma, oppression, mental health literacy, understandable mistrust of the medical system, and lots of others. And additionally, studies have found correlation between discrimination and oppression with symptom severity for, you know, for individuals who do have anxiety disorders or OCD. Monica Williams um, out of Connecticut and her group, among others, have published a lot of research around mental health equity and anxiety disorders and OCD. And I strongly encourage folks to, um, you know, to look her up and look up a number of her articles. She also has a website that <laughs> that lists a lot of this. But absolutely, there's clear evidence that equity is an issue in, in anxiety and OCD. Just to follow up on that, do you happen to know of any kind of specific to anxiety disorders? Um, obviously, in terms of just mental health, inequity is unfortunately huge in, in our country. Do you know of any kind of targeted interventions around anxiety um, disorders, whether it's OCD or GAD, um, around kind of issues of equity or any kind of exciting things that are happening to address this, like known disparity? I would say, you know, Monica Williams' group is working on that, <laughs> among others. So yes, I mean, I think the same folks who are researching it and putting, you know, and putting out the publications are also working on you know, on clinically changing it and changing it, in, um, you know, in the, in the research priorities. There are others besides her. She's just sort of the, the best published kind of that I'm that I'm aware of. And I would say at any clinical institution that is treating children with anxiety disorders, it's incumbent upon us to do the same thing and not let it, you know, not let it fall to all of the researchers. So I can say in the institution where I work, this is part of our clinical research and training focus. And it is a major work in progress. So we are ourselves looking at access to treatment because we know that intensive exposure-based therapy for individuals and family therapy for families will definitely change the trajectory of a child with anxiety's course. And we also know 
that families cannot access us because we do not have public transportation that comes to our hospital. We are a program that involves five days a week of care (laughs) and um, a heavy family involvement in bringing children to and from. It involves home visits, um, letting people into your home who you don't know and come to know over the two to three months that your child's there. And that is just rife with complications for families from both you know, socioeconomic and racially and ethnically minoritized backgrounds. So it is it is everything from the very structure of how we how we run our program up through the clinicians that we have in our program. And we are looking at all of it. And our the research arm of our group is actively with some of their research studies investigating ways to increase access and have exposure therapy delivered by bachelor's level staff, you know, called exposure coaches rather than PhD or MD or DO or, or PsyD clinicians, um, both to get a bigger population of people doing this evidence-based treatment and to hopefully get a more representative group of clinicians at, you know, or, or exposure coaches working with kids who across the board have anxiety disorders regardless of their background. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's so helpful. And I, you know, one thing that really struck me about your answer is just you being able to kind of like name all of the things that are like structural barriers within, you know, your program, probably other programs, or, you know, treatment centers in general, and you can't change something if you can't identify what is specifically not working for families. So just, I think just the fact that your, you know, group has taken the time to identify like, oh, what are the barriers that are like, we're imposing, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. that are like, created by us and you know and then and then how do we address those I, I think is a really it's an important reminder that that's how we create changes that we have to be like thoughtful about what is actually happening um, at the you know institution level so that you can change it so that's awesome you can't change what you can't name is that, uh, that is a true. phrase anyone knows but um, <laughs> so you, you name it first and then you can make changes so that's exciting to hear that's awesome should we uh, move on to treatment then? You know, we sort of you d- talked about treatment a little bit just now, actually. C- can you uh, expand a little bit on um, these types of treatment options, especially when it comes to types of therapy, at least? It sounds like therapy is first line, correct? It is. So the first line gold standard durable treatment <laughs> for anxiety and OCD in youth is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy called exposure therapy. So Exposure therapy has been proven to be the most active ingredient within cognitive behavioral therapy. So you hear CBT thrown around a lot when it comes to anxiety, like the answer on all of the boards or the, you know, or step or is, you know, or your shelf exam is this person has an anxiety disorder. What's that? You know, what's the gold standard treatment? Cognitive behavioral therapy. But what even is that? Right. Like we really have to think about what even is that? And so the B in cognitive behavioral therapy is behavior, right? And the approach to anxiety and OCD that appears to be, based on lots of research, appears to be the most effective is the very active behavioral element of doing exposures to the very thing that produces anxiety in a gradual way, not like throw you in a snake pit if you're scared of snakes, but like start maybe by looking at a picture of a snake, right? Or, you know, something like that. So exposing a person to the thing that evokes that anxious feeling, and then despite all of our instincts to run away or, um, you know, or avoid or seek reassurance, or in the case of OCD, to perform a ritual to neutralize that distress, an exposure therapist would coach a child with anxiety to sit with it, to do what's called ride the wave, like ride the anxiety or the distress or the disgust or whatever that aversive feeling is as it peaks. 
and then you write it down the other side. And the very, very clear reality is that it will come down if we stay with it. So the analogy that we use for kids is when you jump in a pool or an ocean to go swimming, unless you live in Florida and it's the middle of summer, how does the water feel? It's cold. It's cold. Thank you, Justin. It's cold, right? What do you have to do to get used to it? You got to sit with it. You have to stay in it, right? You probably have to swim. You have to swim. (laughs) Maybe. But you you really, I mean, unless it's like truly hypothermia-inducing water and you need to like get your metabolism up so that you don't freeze to death, right? But you don't actually have to do anything but stay in it. Our bodies are naturally made to habituate, right? Like if you tap, if I tap on my forehead... No one can see me because this is a podcast. But if I tap on my forehead and I keep going and keep going, keep going for the duration of this podcast, my body actually will not sense that I'm doing that anymore by the end, right? Our bodies are designed to start tuning things out that just stay constant and they gradually habituate if you stay in it. But if you jump in the pool or the ocean and you, oh, it's too cold and you run back out, it is going to be too cold the next time you get in too. And then the time after that and the time after that. And it's that same process with whatever it is that brings out that really strong emotional response or physical response, right? So I'm afraid of spiders. That's been true since birth. Literally, my mom tells stories of like I was six weeks old and she was holding me around Halloween and there was a spider, fake spider dangling from the ceiling. I was arching my back and like trying to get out of her arms, right? Like born this way. And I have done exposure therapy with my patients. And with my trainees, which like they can attest, it is it is not pretty. I am shrieking. I am screaming. I am tolerating it with great distress. And I am now able to hold a spider, which if you asked me that five years ago, I'd be like, oh, you're funny. There's no way I would ever hold the spider, right? I can get through my life without needing to hold the spider. It's not that impairing. We're good. But it works. It really works. And it's really scary. It's really hard. And so we don't ask and we can't really justifiably ask children to do this without a lot of support. But if we can support them in doing it, the degree of empowerment that can come to a child and a family when they realize this feeling is not something dangerous. It is something based in an anxiety disorder, but it is not dangerous. It won't hurt you. And you can gain power over it by leaning into it, feeling it, and letting your body habituate on its own. So that's how exposure therapy works. I think this is amazing. And and it's great. This is at first line. And I'm very happy that you have a pet spider now in my mind. Um, I, for the, I will never have I am, a pet spider. If I, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that step. Uh, but if I uh, – let's say that I am an outstanding clinician and I acknowledge that this is an anxiety disorder and that maybe even I acknowledge that there is a ritual that is associated with, with OCD or that it's a specific phobia or that there's something – that there is a core fear that could be addressed – and I want to uh, set up this patient with, I imagine that it's institutional dependent, but when I am asking for a referral to psychotherapy, am I specifically saying, you know, CBT? Am I specifically saying it's for exposure therapy? Am I just saying anxiety or am I saying, you know, mental health help and, you know, washing my hands? Uh, obviously, that's yeah. not the right answer, but I recognize, you know, it's a challenge to make sure that people are being set up with a 
provider that's trained in this specific modality? Is this universal? Is every single psychotherapist going to be familiar with exposure therapy and able to offer that? Should I be, how can I best set up my patient for success? I love that question. And the short answer is no, every single mental health professional will not be equipped to do exposure therapy. And yes, as someone referring a patient, you are specifically trying to help them find someone who does do exposure therapy. So, and that, you know, going back to what I was saying before, that's one of the things that in our group we're working on. There are other groups around the country too. I just happen to know our groups work, you know, most intimately on training more and more community therapists to do exposure therapy because it is so effective and because not a lot of people do it, especially depending on where you are regionally. So, if you are referring someone, what you are specifically asking for is a therapist who is expert in cognitive behavioral therapy with the exposure content, with ex- or, say, or just saying an exposure therapist. We need an exposure therapist. Lots of people will say, oh, I do CBT. But what that will often look like is coping, distraction, or attempts at cognitive restructuring. The problem with those things is those all still on some level send a message that anxiety is something that needs to be gotten rid of and avoided or distracted away from as opposed to felt until you can peak and come down naturally, right? And so there's a role for all of those things outside of exposures, but in the exposures themselves, if we actually want to move the needle for this child over the course of their life, there has to be an exposure element where you are not coping out of or distracting away from or avoiding that anxious feeling. So say we do find this, this, uh, this a therapist who is trained in good exposure therapy. How long would we expect a patient to be going through this type of therapy? What does mm. that look like? Are they being seen weekly for like three months and then that's likely a normal or are they going to be seen for the rest of their lives or are they seen for like six months, then they're going to graduate, but then they may have relapse and they have to do it again? Like what what do we see this as? Yes to all of those scenarios. <laughs> um, it It totally depends on the situation. And what I mean by that is if we, you know, if a child is recognized early as having an anxiety disorder and their entire context and way of interacting with their world and their family's entire system hasn't gotten reoriented around accommodating their anxiety, then you may be able to do this relatively quickly. So yes, traditional outpatient therapy would be once a week for about an hour with an exposure therapist doing exposures in the session and then having exposure homework that you leave the session and go do with the child and their caregiver together, right? Where you are actively practicing these exposures day in and day out because exposure is a learning process. Like we're rewiring the brain through this process of learning that this is not dangerous, that this feels uncomfortable and you can get used to it. And in turn, then it won't feel that bad, you know, over time. So that can be, you know, we've had some children who they really latch onto the frame and their families are like right on board and they make necessary changes fairly quickly. And yes, we can see really great results in a matter of a few months of, of once a week therapy. At the same time, on the other end of that spectrum are kids who for nobody's fault have had these symptoms for long enough or they came on strongly enough that their entire world got reoriented around fear and avoidance or ritualizing or whatever it may be. And their families 
through what a mentor of mine call errors of kindness, right? Like as parents or caregivers of children, when our children are distressed, like we want nothing more than to make them feel better, right? Like when my six-year-old daughter is sobbing, I want to go scoop her up and reassure her about whatever it is, right? Like that is a natural parental response. The problem is an anxiety disorder sort of hijacks that natural response and gives that response to things that really aren't dangerous. But for all the world to that child, it feels like they are. And so we spend equal equal parts with families as we do with children. Sometimes with younger children, we spend more time with the family than we do with the child because reorienting the family to how they approach the child when they're distressed is just as important as the child doing exposures themselves. And so if a family has been accommodating because they didn't know any better and they're just trying to make their child feel better and get through the day, if they've been accommodating for a long time, then a treatment course might take a lot longer than if not. Or if the child has you know, been out of school for a year because their social anxiety is so extreme and a lot of other patterns have gotten set up around it, then a few months of once a week exposure therapy isn't going to cut it. So there's so much more that goes into being able to say how long this will take. Obviously, and this is this goes back to why I advocate for screening. Obviously, the earlier we catch it, the better it's going to go. And then we also have to think about the nature, like the natural course of anxiety disorders. And by and large, the natural course of anxiety disorders is that they will be waxing and waning over time. There will be periods of exacerbation, oftentimes in times of great stress or family change or, you know, starting a new school or something like that. And then there will be periods where they kind of just aren't as bad. The earlier we can get children and and families on board with the exposure frame, the better they can ride out those periods of exacerbation. And so you ask, like, could someone be in treatment for their entire lives? Potentially. That's not the hope, right? The hope is that they sort of understand and come to what we call live the exposure lifestyle, (laughs) you know? And so anytime OCD or an anxiety disorder throws in a new core fear, which oftentimes will happen, they're like, oh, I recognize this. I know what this is. And then a thought just becomes a thought. It doesn't become something that takes over your life. But that takes understanding and having practiced the exposure model. I love that. I think that's great. Do you think it's worth talking about if primary care providers should be counseling parents on having patients sit with the discomfort? Because I admit that I think I would love assistance in how to do that without invalidating the child's concern. And by just saying, oh, your child is afraid of when you leave, you should just abandon your child and (laughs) let them deal with it. Is there a parent counseling exposure therapy for dummies that a primary care provider should do while they're waiting for the very long wait time for good mental health uh, therapists sometimes? Yeah. So the book of uh, exposure therapy for dummies for primary care has not yet been written. Um, but if you want to collaborate on that, Justin, you and I could do that. So, But the, the answer is absolutely. So I would never expect primary care providers to do exposure therapy in their clinics with their I mean, I will say, actually, many pediatricians that I interface with and care for patients with will get on board with the exposure, you know, exposure therapy that we're doing with their patient and they'll go to the office for needle exposure, whatever. Right. But that's with us leading it. That's with us providing guidance. But absolutely having the conversation with the family about shifting the frame is 100 percent something that you can do as a primary care doctor in an office. And as I said before, 
maybe as effective, sometimes more so than individual exposure therapy with the child. And I love that you brought up the part of, can we do it without invalidating the child? Because A, you can, and B, it takes intentional effort to be sure you don't invalidate, right? Because what the vast majority of people will say is just calm down. It's not anything to be scared of, (laughs) right? That's incredibly invalidating. It can be true that something isn't rationally dangerous, right? And it's also true that for the person with the anxiety disorder, it feels like it is. And that's valid. (laughs) Like the feeling is valid. So you validate the valid, right? You validate the emotional experience that the child is having. Because that is their emotional experience. It is not up to anyone else to say what it is, right? That is it. You can validate the valid, which is the emotional experience, while (laughs) supporting and holding the frame of both and, right? You can both feel this scared and do this hard thing with our support, right? You don't put a but in there because the but will invalidate everything you said before it, right? So you take the but out. And you replace it with and. And that might sound silly, but language is powerful. It is really powerful, especially in situations like this. So an example for Anita's family, right, from this case would be she's, let's say she's scared that she's going to get an answer wrong on her homework and turn it in. And what do we want to say? That the teacher is going to judge her, right? Or that there's a fear of being imperfect. So that's a very real fear for her right? She, pro- she probably feels tense. She probably ruminates and worries about like, what she, you know, what's my teacher going to think? So we can coach the parents to say, yeah, Nita, that's really hard. Like that's a lot to think about. That's a lot to be worrying about. That's a hard way to feel in your body. Like when you're thinking all of that. And we know, right? We know in our, in our wise minds that your teacher is not going to say that. Or we don't believe your teacher is going to say that. We know you do, right? And you're not able to go out and play with your friends, which is something you like doing because you're spending so much time on your homework and we want to help you play with your friends. So you're going to have this feeling. It's big and it's scary and it's hard. And the fear is real. And let's see if we can coach you to have your courage be bigger, right? Can we do this bravery practice? Can we do this exposure challenge, whatever you want to call it, where You're not just going to not recheck it at all, right? That would be too hard. But we're going to say, all right, can you not check the last page, right? Can you not check the last page and go out and play with your friends? And you're not going to feel good. We know that. You're going to worry about it. And we want you to try hard to go out and play with your friends, knowing that your homework might not be perfect, and that's okay, right? But you're not telling her, don't worry about it. Relax. It's not, you know, it's not a big deal. Does that sound totally ridiculous to say as a primary care doctor to your to your patient's family? No, I don't think so. I think that is a nice way to navigate the the invalidating, avoiding the invalidation, uh, validating and just saying kind of, as you said, riding the wave and supporting the person through it. And I think the important part there is that it's gradual, right? Like we don't want to do exposures to kids if we can avoid it. <laughs> we want to do exposures with kids. And we would like them to participate in designing what those exposures are. And so what we're asking families to do is have a shift in frame, right, of being able to validate their child's emotion. They are scared. It doesn't matter if you don't think it's something to be scared of. They are scared. So we validate that. 
helping parents recognize or caregivers recognize that if Anita is crying and really upset, that's okay. Like that isn't something where then you immediately have to give in, right, to what the anxiety is asking you to do. Like it's okay for her to be crying and upset as you're saying, I know this is hard and I love you too much to let anxiety take your friendships away from you or this activity away from you, right? That you're stuck doing this homework that you don't want to do, but you feel like you have to do, right? Instead of going out and doing this other thing. So we're asking parents to tolerate their children's distress in service of letting children learn over time they actually can do it and then celebrating when they do, (laughs) right? But doing so in ways that are small and gradual and let the child get some wins under their belt in the process to then start getting that good internal feeling of like, hey, like I did that. I was brave. I was courageous. Like I did this thing and the world didn't end. It wasn't terrible. And hey, maybe I want to do that again. But I think you can, again, without running exposures, I think you can have conversations with parents about doing that at home or at the very least about parents themselves not accommodating the anxiety, right? So they can't force Anita to go outside, right, and play with her friends. Like, and they probably shouldn't like rip the pencil out of her hand if she's like erasing and rewriting her homework, right? That's probably not a great idea. But if Anita is asking constant reassurance seeking questions of her parents, like, but do you think I'm going to get in trouble if I don't get this right? But do you think my teacher is going to, you know, say that I'm a bad student? Parents do have a choice of how they answer that, right? The easiest thing and to say, no, your teacher's not going to be mad at you. No, it's, to, you know, the easiest thing is to provide the reassurance. But it's like if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask for some milk, right? Like anxiety is just going to come back and ask for more. The harder thing in the moment, but the more effective thing in the long run is helping parents learn to say, I know you're really anxious about that. And that's your anxiety talking or that's your OCD talking, you know, whatever it may be. And I'm not going to answer that. She can still go what she needs, do what she needs to do, but the parents don't have to be the ones accommodating. So you've got me completely convinced. I think definitely, you know, this exposure therapy and discussing these types of scenarios and understanding how to talk to parents and the, and the patients seems, I mean, I'm, I'm totally on board. I guess the, my next question is, are there patients is, or a subset of patients where this is just not going to work? This hmm. is, this would not be your first line and you would want to do, you're like, you look at this patient, you're like, maybe we should try medication. Let's throw meds. Is, yes. <laughs> so I have sort of two arms to my answer to that question. One arm is, is there a patient for whom this isn't going to work at all? And the other is, is there are there patients for whom this isn't going to work like yet or in isolation, right? Or alone. (laughs) Um, So to answer the first part, if a patient becomes unsafe in the context of being distressed and exposure therapy is inherently distress inducing, probably not a great idea to start with that before you've put some other things in place. So in our program, we now have one sort of track of our program as a combined treatment with dialectical behavioral therapy for distress tolerance, for crisis survival, for emotion regulation, for management of non-suicidal self-injury or suicidal thinking in conjunction with exposures for their anxiety or their OCD. Because if you distress a child who already or is prone to, you know, having suicidal thinking or behaviors or non-suicidal self-injury or aggression or elopement, right? then 
this isn't going to go very far very successfully. And so I think part of it is you need to know what the child is capable of tolerating and what the family system is capable of tolerating um, and how regulated the child's able to be. Now, I will say screaming, yelling, sobbing, slamming doors like that's fine. We can do that. Right. But if it's true danger, then no, you shouldn't start with exposure therapy right away. You need to lay a stronger foundation of emotion regulation first. The other question about when should we throw meds at it? <laughs> um, so the research is pretty clear for, so the CAM study or the Child Anxiety Multimodal Study for Anxiety Disorders, and then the uh, POT study or Pediatric OCD Treatment Study are sort of the two seminal studies that support this. Both say that for moderate to severe anxiety disorders for the purpose of CAMs or OCD for the purpose of POTS, for moderate to severe disorders, in those categories, the combination of exposure-based cognitive behavioral therapy plus an SSRI is more effective than either one alone. So if you have a child with mild anxiety, you know, an anxiety disorder of some form or OCD, it's totally reasonable to start with exposure therapy if you can access an exposure therapist, right? Which we know is a really big if across the board with mental health right now, given what we're all going through with the pandemic. So I get that. But if you can access that, then totally reasonable, especially if the child's really young or the family is really opposed to medications, right? Even moderate, like again, if the family's really opposed or the child's really young. But if you've been trying exposure therapy and either the child is so vibratingly anxious that you can't actually find an exposure small enough to get them to sign on to, right? Because it's just like too hard. Or the impairment is so great that it's like you have to do something bigger, faster because they're not eating, right? If they're, you know, we have children who have a metaphobia, like we were talking about at the beginning, fear of vomiting, who aren't eating. You can't wait around for months for exposure therapy to work by itself, right? So if it's moderate to severe illness and you've either tried exposure therapy and it hasn't gone very far or you have functional impairment where you're thinking like, I don't know how long we can wait, it makes sense to concurrently start an SSRI alongside the exposure therapy. Similarly, if you are in a region that really doesn't have exposure therapists and all you have at your disposal is medication, SSRIs have some efficacy in and of themselves. Like that is true. And so don't not start it just because you don't have access to therapy. With that said, medications for OCD and anxiety are really tools in the toolbox. They are not the answer. The way I think of them and the way I explain them to the families of the children that I treat is, you know, a medication can help reduce the background baseline level of anxiety, or it can take the edge off, or it can bring things down to a level where you are capable of approaching the exposures and doing them and engaging in the learning process, right? We have optimal levels of arousal that we need to be at to learn, and exposure is fundamentally a learning process. So if we are just flooded, we're not going to learn. <laughs> Similarly, if we're just like chilling out and completely fine, we're not going to encode things very well either. And so if we need to bring the anxiety down a notch or two with medication to help exposure therapy happen or to get a child in the door to do exposure therapy, then absolutely that's the time to use medications. And SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, would be you know the first line choice for that. All right, folks, we are literally running out of time here and we have so much more to talk about. So we are actually going to close our episode off right here and we're going to come back with a part two to talk about medications for anxiety. So I hope everyone comes back for that in a little bit.